This morning's reading is sections taken from Acts chapter 10, the story of Cornelius and Peter. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius? He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon Atana, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. And as Peter talked with Cornelius, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, you yourselves know that it is improper for a Jew to associate with or visit an outsider. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Then Peter began to speak to them. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every people, anyone who fears him and practices righteousness is acceptable to him. Thanks be to God. It is almost impossible to overstate the theological significance of today's reading from Acts chapter 10, because without Peter's vision on the rooftop, there is a good case to be made that Christianity would have died out soon after. At this point in the story, only a tiny minority of Jewish people were following Jesus, and the possibility for this small messianic Jewish sect to peter out, so to speak, 
was very high. Judaism in the first century was itself a highly sectarian religion. It was a minority faith, followed only by people from one specific national identity and quite a small nationality at that. The Jews at this time understood themselves as the covenanted people of God, as those called and chosen from among the nations to be God's own people. And their role in the world was to bear the lamp of God's grace among the pagan nations, shining as a beacon to a dark world, testifying to God's faithfulness. What their understanding of their role did not include was seeking to convert all of the other nations to their religion of Judaism. In fact, it was surprisingly difficult for someone to become Jewish if you hadn't been born such. And that wasn't really the point of the way they saw their, their calling in the world. Rather, the Jews as God's chosen people were there to highlight the sin of the world through their covenant obedience and to point the nations more broadly to God, but not to invite the nations to enter into the covenant promises and relationships and obligations that came with that. Now, of course, there were always those beyond Judaism who responded to that witness. These were often known as God-fearers, Gentiles, who had rejected the pagan gods and who worshipped the one God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And we, we get such a person here in our reading from the book of Acts. His name is Cornelius. He's a centurion of the Italian cohort. He's a Roman uh, and he is a devout man who fears God. So here we have somebody who is outside of Judaism, but who has nonetheless turned his face and his family towards the worship of the Jewish God. And uh, the earliest Christians, those Jewish people who had started worshipping Jesus as their Messiah, well, they similarly did not have a vision of their Jesus following as being particularly relevant beyond the people of Israel. Their missionary concern was to tell other Jews that Jesus was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who had come to call Jewish people into a new depth of encounter with God. It was a kind of a Jewish renewal movement. It wasn't, in its earliest days, Christianity was not a religion that sought to convert everyone. So how do we get from there to Christianity as a faith which spans the globe with followers from every tribe and language and people and nation, as the book of Revelation puts it. Well, the answer, at least in part, is that it happens when Peter has this vision on a rooftop. It's not for nothing that I just quoted from the book of Revelation. Stop laughing, those of you who know me well. Because Peter's vision on the rooftop is an apocalyptic event. It's a moment when he looks up and we are told he sees heaven opened and a new way of seeing the world comes into being. This is apocalyptic at its most authentic, not some dramatic vision of the end of the world to make everybody scared, but rather a vision of a new world coming into being. 
the unveiling, the revealing, the revelation of a new way of being in the world. And the book of Revelation, written at about the same time as the book of Acts, both written by my estimation sometime in the early 70s, um, Revelation offers its own vision of heaven opened. And what the writer of the book of Revelation sees through his door, which opens into heaven, just as Peter's does in the book of Acts, is a world where the blessings of God extend beyond Judaism throughout the world. So we have these two parallel traditions, Peter and the seer on Patmos, who look up into heaven and see a new way of seeing the world. And what they see is that God is bigger than just them and their nationality. And so four times through the book of Revelation, we get the repeated affirmation that those called by God come from all nations, all kindreds, all people and all tongues. And in both Peter's vision and that of the apocalypse, it seems that heaven's perspective, when heaven's perspective is revealed, heaven's perspective on the limits of God's calling is far wider than those of the people receiving the vision. Both John and Peter have to learn that God's call goes beyond Israel. Now for Peter, the key moment is on that rooftop as he's feeling hungry. Um, I don't do a lot of uh, fasting. Um, I wonder if I should, maybe I'd get a vision or maybe I'd just get thinner. He falls into a trance in his hunger and he sees heaven opened. Coming down from heaven is something that he finds repulsive. It's a sheet with animals on it and he is instructed to kill and eat. Now I don't know what animal you would least like to eat. For me, I think I gave it some thought this week. For me, I think it's spiders. A few years ago, Liz and I were in Cambodia and we were wandering around one of the local markets and there was a man who had a tray of fried tarantulas with some scorpions on the side. And he was offering them for sale for people to eat. Despite the mythology that suggests that uh, under the Khmer Rouge people had to eat spiders to survive, uh, that, that's not true. Uh, this is a tourist trade. And occasionally some brave slash drunk traveler will decide to give it a go. Uh, it is in fact a problematic trade. Um, our guidebook warned us that the spiders are foraged from the local forest and the numbers are becoming severely depleted. And I would like to say that we declined the offer of a deep fried tarantula for sound ecological reasons, particularly on this weekend of uh, ecological environmental action. But the truth is, I think we just felt the same way about that tray of spiders that I suspect Peter felt about the animals in his vision. And three times he's told to kill and eat, and he refuses, not just out of disgust, but because the animals on that sheet are the very animals that he has been brought up to believe it is against his, is against his religion to consume. To eat them would make him ritually, spiritually impure. And so the voice from heaven tells him, what God has made clean you must not call unclean. What God has made clean, you must not call unclean. This happens three times to poor Peter. 
Perhaps recalling his threefold denial of Jesus and the threefold commands from Jesus that Peter should tend his sheep. But anyway, he's then apparently let off the hook without having to kill and eat because the sheep's taken back up to heaven and he is spared actually carrying out the commands to eat his tray of spiders. But then through the following events, the meaning of the vision starts to become clear. It isn't about food after all. It's about something much bigger. Peter is greeted by the men who have come to summon him. And when he gets to Cornelius's house, he tells his host, you yourselves know, says Peter, that it is improper for a Jew to associate with or visit an outsider. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. And so Peter goes into the house of the Roman centurion Cornelius. Before Easter, we were working our way through Matthew's Gospel. And interestingly, Matthew's Gospel tells us that when Jesus was commissioning Peter, he said to him, I tell you, Peter, this is in Matthew 16, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Well, this is exactly what we find happening here at Cornelius's house. It's the only occasion we have on record in which Peter uses the power that Jesus gave him to bind and unbind things in heaven and on earth. And so Peter declares an absolutely binding part of the Christian revelation that no human is to be called impure or profane. If we were Roman Catholics, we might at this point ponder on this brief, infallible declaration. As Peter opens the gates of heaven to all. But there's a nuance here in the way the story is told. I wonder if you spotted it. Peter doesn't say, he does not say, God has revealed to me that there's no such thing as that which is impure or profane. Rather, Peter says, God has said not to call any person impure or profane. It's not that there is some objective truth of profanity when no one is really impure, whether or not some people mistakenly think that other people are. Rather, what Peter is saying is that we sometimes, is that what we sometimes call reality is in fact merely a human linguistic construct. Profanity, impurity, and all the shame and guilt that come with them, all of these are human constructs. We speak them into being in the way we speak of others. And Peter says, God has told me not to call any person, not to call any person profane or impure. If we describe someone as impure, our description is not independent of reality, but rather creates that reality of impurity in that person's life. It is not true, despite what my dad told me many times when I was a kid, it is not true 
Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Because words can be more destructive to a person's identity than, frankly, any act of physical violence against them. Words of othering, exclusion, derogatory language and shame-inducing shame belief. These create worlds in which real people are shamed, belittled, excluded and othered. Our words create worlds of pain which we then force other people to inhabit. So what Peter is saying when he affirms that God has revealed to him not to call anyone profane or impure is that there is an indispensable grammatical rule in the kingdom of God which is that no one must be spoken of as profane or impure. We must not call another person unclean. And therefore, there must be no discrimination against any sort of person whom someone else might deem objectionable. Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, speaks of the divisions that marked humanity in the first century. Galatians 3.28, he names male and female, issues of gender. He names slave and free, issues of social status. He names Jew and Greek, issues of ethnicity. Gender, social status, ethnicity, I suspect we're not so far from these divisions in our world today. And yet Peter says that we must not declare another human being impure or unclean. We must not declare another human being disgusting because to do so creates a world where people come to see themselves, to experience themselves as impure, unclean and disgusting. This is true with regards to ethnicity. Racism is real. It occurs in our country, in our city. It occurs in our church because it occurs in our hearts. Social status. How easy it is to write people off as less valuable than ourselves, less worthy, maybe. I want to read a short passage for you now from uh, a book by Vicky Beeching. If you've never heard of her, it's probably because you weren't going to the right kind of church back in the noughties. She has been described by The Guardian as arguably the most influential Christian of her generation. After a spell as the worship leader of a vineyard church in Oxford in the late 90s, uh, she was a very talented musician, so she did what all musicians should do, she moved to Nashville. And her worship albums topped the Christian music charts on both sides of the Atlantic for over a decade. She regularly led worship in the Big Top at Spring Harvest here in the UK. And in 2013, when the Same-Sex Marriage Act was passed in the UK, she unexpectedly spoke out in favour of same-sex marriage. And the Evangelical Church, which she had been at the heart of for the last 20 years, began to get a bit suspicious of her. She found the invitations to lead worship started to dry up. So when she came out herself a year later, she was shunned by those who had formerly adored her. 
She was declared unclean. She was declared profane. Anyway, in 2018, after gaining her doctorate in theology from Durham University, she published a book called Undivided, Coming Out, Becoming Whole and Living Free from Shame. And in this book, she speaks about Peter's vision. And I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs because it's better in her words than mine. She said, as I read about Peter's vision, I felt as though I were there myself, looking at the sheet falling from the sky. For me, the unclean things on that sheet represented my gay orientation. And like Peter, I was arguing with God, saying, Lord, I have never so much as touched a person of the same sex romantically. I've kept your law and commandments. I would never disobey your word. And what God had said to Peter, I felt he said to me too, do not call unclean what I have made clean. God was letting me in on a new perspective, one of radical acceptance and inclusion. Do not call unclean what I have made clean, echoed around in my head and my heart. The person I'd always been, a gay person, was not something to be ashamed of. God accepted me and loved me and my orientation was part of his grand design. There was nothing unclean about it and nothing to run away from. Just as the Gentiles could fully join God's family, now LGBTQ plus people could too. They were on an equal footing with straight people, so there was no reason why they couldn't love and be loved, marry and raise families and enjoy full membership in the church and society. If there was nothing unclean about gay relationships, there was nothing to condemn. God had spoken. So says the wonderful Vicky Beeching. But what has all this got to do with Easter? What was it in the story of the cross and the resurrection that led Peter and John and other early Jewish Jesus followers to a revelation that God's inclusion went far beyond the boundaries of their inherited tradition? Well, James Allison suggests that it's to do with Jesus as the Lamb of God, the innocent victim slain by the sins of the world. At Easter, we find Jesus, the sinless one, being made sin for the forgiveness of sins. The pure and holy one becomes impure and unholy. In fact, he becomes as impure as the grave which is about as impure as you could get in Judaism. Within ancient Judaism, any contact with a dead body rendered the person who had touched it unclean and profane for a prescribed period of time. And Jesus' execution as a criminal on the cross and his burial in a borrowed tomb had rendered him as impure as it was possible for a human being to be. Or to put it another way, at Easter, Jesus becomes the scapegoat for humanity, the one on whom the sins of the world are laid. Do you know the story of the origins of the scapegoat? It's a word we all know, it's common parlance. It comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 21 to 22. Listen. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the Israelites and all their transgressions, all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat. 
and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Now, this process described by the book of Leviticus was the way in which the ancient Jewish community dealt with its sense of its own sinfulness, its sense of its own shame. It laid all that guilt and sin on the innocent goat and then sent it away into the wilderness, presumably to eventually die. And human communities have been doing this down the centuries ever since. It's just that for most of the time, the scapegoat is another human. We declare someone or some group of someone's to be responsible for all the wider problems that we have within society. We scapegoat them and we expel them and we victimize them. And we come to believe that they are genuinely dangerous. And so we use our language to construct a reality where they become, for us, unclean, impure, shameful, guilty. We do what Peter realises should not be done. We call the innocent profane. And this is what happened to Jesus par excellence on the cross. He becomes the victim hated without cause, killed without reason, sinful without sin. But the impurity will not stick. The glory of the empty tomb is that the lie of the cross is exposed. Because of the empty tomb, it becomes impossible to believe in the real blameworthiness of the victim. And as Peter and the other early followers of Jesus discovered, if you can no longer believe in the guilt of the victim you have created, then no more can you believe in the linguistic construction of reality which created the us and them in the first place. For Peter, he could simply no longer believe that God was only for Peter's own people. Because to believe that was to declare the Gentiles unclean, something he could no longer do in the light of the cross and the empty tomb. Peter's vision, received in the light of the events of Easter, showed him that the mechanisms of scapegoating, of declaring the other profane, are nothing but a lie told by people to justify their own sin and guilt and shame. He realised that the resurrection of the crucified victim didn't simply declare people clean, but rather exposed and dismantled the whole mechanism which creates impure or profane people of any category in the first place. It's not so much that in Christ sinners are declared clean, but rather it is that no one, no one should be declared unclean. In the kingdom of God, it is not possible for one person to judge themselves righteous compared to the unrighteousness of another, because God has shown us not to call any person profane or impure. And so Peter baptizes 
the Gentile Cornelius and his household as a sign and symbol of the new world that is coming into being in Christ Jesus, where no one is declared unrighteous, not even a Gentile centurion. And if nothing and no one is declared profane, then all things and all people are sacred. It is one of the great tragedies of Christian history that scapegoating and witch hunts have formed such a dominant part of the way we relate to one another and the world. And what would it mean, I wonder, for us here today to agree with Peter that God has shown us not to call anyone profane or unclean? Can we speak into being a world where victims are recovered, where the dominant narratives of othering are silenced? and where the universal good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus is genuinely good news to those whom others reject, exclude, and enact violence against. Can we agree between ourselves that we will continue to work at dismantling the white supremacy that so many of us have grown up within and which we have taken unwanting into our hearts? Can we agree between ourselves that we will dismantle the homophobia that many of us have grown up within and which we have taken unwanting within our hearts? You see, the thing is, if you're looking for God, God is not found in the empty tomb of the resurrection. That's what the angel said to the women, isn't it? You're looking for him. You're looking in the wrong place. He's not here. Rather, the resurrected Christ is found in the face of the victimized, the excluded, the abused, and the rejected. Whoever we would turn our face from, however distasteful they may be to us, the spiritual reality is that they, they are a reflection of the face of Christ. The one who died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of all. So let us speak a new world into being. And through our words and by our lives, then the kingdom begins to come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray together to you, whether we're gathered here in this building or joining from other places or at other times. This is the season of resurrection and new life. Help us to live our lives as resurrection people, reflecting you in our daily lives. We acknowledge again that the gospel of Christ is something to be shared. Remind us when we hurt or discriminate in thought or word to remember that Christ loved and died for all, not just for some. Give us the courage to live our daily lives with love and without fear, according to your gospel. Yesterday was the annual celebration of Earth Day, a movement begun in 1970 promoting environmental awareness and the need to protect the planet. 
Christian Aid states, still the world's resources are enjoyed by a few and not shared by all. We are a people who are eager to improve our own lives, but slow to improve our world. Lord, help us to have a global perspective in our care for the environment. Lord, we pray for the war-torn areas of the world, Ukraine, Sudan, Syria, Yemen, Myanmar. We pray for Turkey and Syria as they rebuild homes and livelihoods after the devastating earthquakes. Lord, we pray too for those we know who are struggling with illness, mental or physical. Those who are struggling with grief and those who are worried about an uncertain future. Give them, we pray, a sense of peace and of hope. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. And our last hymn, we sing together, God of every tribe and nation. God of the Holy Trinity, make you strong in faith and love. Defend you on every side and guide you in truth and peace. The blessing of the God, Redeemer, Sustainer and Creator be among us always and remain with us as we go. Amen. <laughs>